0: Welcome to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Rolling Stone Executive Editor Nathan Brackett. For this episode, we're going to do a very special expanded version of what we're listening to devoted entirely to the new Radiohead album. We're also going to talk to Rolling Stone Contributing Editor Mark Benelli about his new book, Screamin' Jay Hawkins' All-Time Greatest Hits. We're also going to do Reader Mail about the new version of Blink-182. But first, today's episode of Rolling Stone Music Now is brought to you by Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer at home. So sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code MUSIC.
1: And
0: we're back. That was Desert Island Disc that we were just listening to, and we're going to talk about the new Radiohead album, their first record in five years, A Moon-Shaped Pool. I'm here with staff writer Andy Green. Hi. And senior writer Brian Hyatt. Hello. Thanks for coming, guys. Sure. Uh, let's get right into it. How is this record stacking up against other Radiohead records? Andy, 25-word review. We gave it four and a half stars on Rolling Stone
2: I think that's very fair. I need more time to process it. I've thoroughly enjoyed my first six or seven listens. It's a very mellow record. For me, the thing that jumped out is just that
0: there's a lot of acoustic guitar on this record there's strings there's a lot of acoustic stuff yeah, on this record maybe very, more than i've ever heard on yeah. a radiohead record he, uh, tom york will do acoustic songs yeah. they'll do acoustic sets live
2: right but
0: this is a gorgeous record
2: yeah it's been great to hear johnny greenwood's orchestrations that he's been doing on his movies for the past few years to be sort of fused into the world of radiohead right which is a very nice change from the last album which was great but it was very electronic and this one this feels more organic at times Well, I mean, every
0: Radiohead record, I guess, either since, like, Kid A or, I guess, to some degree, OK, Computer, has had uh, varying degrees of electronics, you know, probably driven – this is a huge generalization, but by, like, Tom York Mm -hmm. and his – who is a huge electronic music fan. And, of course, like, the the classic, you know, rock fan beef against Radiohead since the Bends, which is almost a cliche (laughs) now has been, like, when are they going to make a great guitar rock record? When is this going to happen? And so I kind of love the like the perversity of this record in the sense that like yeah. this could be their most guitar rock record in years or guitar driven record, but mm-hmm. it's an acoustic record. Right. Yeah. And it's like they. they I mean, know. I
3: totally disagree. I don't think it's it's much less guitar driven than Held to the Thief or like it, it's it's not a guitar driven record at all. I think it's orchestrally I, driven. I think what you mean. Right. You, I think what you're trying to. I think what puts you in that mental space is the fact that it's orchestral and song driven. It's song driven, okay. but it's not guitar. Fair there enough. are moments when Fair the guitars enough. come up, but less so even than like, Held. Tuneful, yeah. Tuneful, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah. I think it's it's more of like this moody, kind of beautiful, extremely arranged, extremely orchestrated thing with yes, some guitars coming in and out, you know. But but I don't I don't see
0: it as a guitar record. I just feel like the guitars, like, do have a prominent role that you haven't heard. Like, I feel like even with Hail to the Thief, yeah, they're like, there are definitely riffs in there, but, like...
2: Even in Rainbows, I don't know, yeah, I just don't, yeah, I, don't right, I don't buy this right, angle, right. basically. I, don't, I just don't,
3: uh, qu- qu- what do you think, Eddie, the, on the guitar level?
2: I hear guitars on it, but it's not <laughs> quite like Hail to the Thief. I would agree right. with you, or definitely not, like, their 90s work at all. But yeah, no, it's a it's definitely it's very orchestral. That that's what jumps out at me. For sure. And what's great is And they, tuneful. tuneful. Tuneful, definitely. Uh, yeah. yeah. What's cool is they give it to you with no context. There's no liner notes, there's no interviews, there's no lyrics, it just here's the album. Which is pretty cool. It just it just allows you to sort of digest it yourself without having to have any other information about it. We're presuming that that it was Johnny Greenwood that was doing a lot of the symphonic stuff, but there's no way to even know that. I mean, there's just no information. It's possible that they won't do any interviews around this record. We'll find out. Yeah, which would not be annoying at at all, right? No, (laughs) (laughs) No, not not at all. all. Not at all. To me,
3: the the biggest question is how they got here. How they got here from uh, the last album, and, and when they said they were totally uninterested in, they told David Frick they were totally uninterested in writing traditional songs. They specifically said, we don't want to sit down and write a chord progression and, and then do a vocal, which is basically like, in other words, we don't want to write a song. That's, I yeah. mean, You know, right. like they wanted to do something. You know, they were sampling the instruments and then layering them and then singing over. It was, it was a totally different, you know, it was even probably more radical. King of Limbs was even more radical in its, its methods than Kid A or anything. Traditional songwriting driven album, which includes, you know, ancient songs, which include True Love Ways. Well, yeah, well, let's talk about for, that. Yeah, you know, it, yeah this is a song that, that they've yeah. been
2: playing live. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a song they started playing in the mid 90s on the Benz Tour. It was on their live album from 01. This has been a part of their universe since almost the very beginning, and they finally decided to put it on an album.
0: Have there been any songs that have had this long an incubation period for them? For for them...
3: No, no. This is the this is the kind of holy grail song for fans. Fans have been obsessed with this song. They already know what all the lyrics are about, and they've made it's kind of hilarious. I, I could watch an entire documentary about just their hilarious number of attempts to record this song. Because what they said, I think to to us, was they could have recorded this song and made it sound like quote a John Mayer song. That's what Nigel Godrich said, and that was that's because it it's a very simple song. It was a simple acoustic song, right? And so they have been beating themselves up for. How many years is it since I knew I've
2: been 21 yeah, years? For
3: 21 years trying to find an acceptable recording of this song. And it, you know, it, I think at one point there were 56 takes in the mid 2000s. So just, you know, and then eventually there was this new keyboard driven version that he played live a few times. And now this version takes it from acoustic guitar to keyboards. I'll try. I like it very much. What, what, do you like it? Does it live up to the live versions for you? Yeah,
2: I think it's great. It's almost slower, even. It's sort of haunting. And in the context of Tom's divorce, too, it almost takes on a whole new meaning now, as does, as, as do many songs on this album, possibly.
3: Oh, oh whoa. what are we going, Oh, my God. Whoa. Was it a divorce? or Were they were they married? Well, they're at least separated, separated. Tom York. They, they,
2: they, they've been together about 25 years. I mean, it's a really oh, long, man, long this relationship. Oh,
3: man, you just touched the, the third rail here. I don't know. The whole podcast lives? is going to dissolve into Radiohead <laughs> static and well, turn back. But it's it's yeah. unavoidable, though. I mean, this
0: is a song that they wrote a couple decades ago, and it definitely means something different when you know the guy who wrote it now lives apart from his <laughs> <a> significant,
2: <laughs> significant other. We can talk about it. We can talk about it. They announced it in a press release. This is public right.
3: information. Yeah, no, go ahead. I mean, if you want to go there, there there is in Daydreaming. There's this backwards masked part of this thing at the end. There's this weird backwards vocal. It's played backwards and pitch shifted, but oh radio God. fans are like getting into Ra- some yes. serious, no, no, like but, Beatles White well, Album yeah. like. well, well, so, But yeah. it's a big Doing part this, of the song. Yeah. It's that big yeah. refrain right. at the It's repeated over and over again. So of course, Radiohead yeah. fans have flipped it forward and you know, deep pitch shifted. And he's saying, "Half my life, half my life, half my life."
2: Oh my Ooh, god. Was, so, yeah. so, so, He's forty seven, you know. they're married twenty three years, so you can do the math.
0: <laughs> now that we're kind of into like the speculation zone, like <laughs> yeah. uh, Andy, you you were also talking about some of like the online chatter about how this could be their last album. People saying like, okay, they're like, uh, was it you? Maybe it wasn't well, you. Was I think, made, a, I think
3: but... this is an idea I invented yesterday. no, just to be but, clear, but, this yeah. is a
0: pure invention. But, but, yeah, but if but, you let's just go down this road as a yeah. thought yeah. exercise. Yeah. Uh, no, right. If you were going to make a last record, it would make sense that you might pull-out songs that, that were old that you have been trying to get right for mm-hmm. years. This does have some of that wistful, you know, last record feel. I'm almost like, this is a, a jump, but it almost reminds me of, like, Pavement's, like, Terror Twilight, which is, like, kind of a, their last record, kind of a, mm. a wistful kind of a band that's kind of been through it. You know, yeah. a lot of this record, you know, has maybe more than the usual Radiohead level of weariness,
2: you know. Uh, sure. And you got the sounds on the last tour, Tom, was a little... Tired of being the front man of a rock band, which is well, uh, you've kind of gotten that sense for a couple decades. Right, but now, especially, but he just seems like I've had it with this shit. I,
3: well, I think you could see it two ways. I did say, like, that was my thought yesterday. And, it, and to be clear, I think I, I'm not even sure that anyone else has said uh, this. I'm sorry, I, just, I didn't
0: credit you with that yeah, ridiculous no, no, theory. No, 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 no,
2: no. Into, no, no I just want <laughs> you to be Me? Yeah,
3: yeah. Well, well, we're, it, it was, it was a thought because I'm
0: I, still I, smarting about your guitar no, dressing. Well, I, back no,
1: I disagree. No, it's fair. I disagree. But I mean,
0: I, you know,
3: but. But I think there's two ways of looking at it. I think this seems like a very significant record, and it does feel like, yeah, it could be a goodbye. Like, you, you know, you take all the songs that people were waiting to hear, you record them, it has this dreamy kind of, like, this lack of avoidance of songs for the first time. And not that they don't have, they've obviously had songs for a long time, but just straightforward, fully composed songs rather than much more experimental things. And it has that that, you know, Valedictory tone to it, um, so yeah, it could be their last album. But the other way of seeing it is that maybe it's a sort of rebirth, you know, because there right. are moments of real joy on this album. There's moments of real, you know, uh, the, there are different ways to love that whole thing, and
0: and sure. so I kid uh, is like is one yeah. of the more up-tempo songs.
4: and
0: it kind of builds into this awesome electric guitar riff at the end.
3: That is guitar. You're, you're that is right. Thank you. Yeah. That is, Thank that, you, Brian. <laughs> that, that, that is that, guitar. That, that is, And that's a, a really cool guitar thing at the at the end of that. Yeah. I really, really do that. Thanks for but, saying but, that. yes, uh, yes, yes. And, yes, and yes. I, the, I agree with you. That is definitely, um, although it would be funny if it turns out that that's like very precisely sampled keyboards that they right. make to sound yeah. like well, guitar. Well, yeah, well, it'll come out. Yeah. In which, by which the one interview that Johnny Greenwood does, he'll say what that was. It's hilarious that people thought that was guitars. Of course it was not guitars. Right.
0: <laughs> well, well, let's go into your favorite. What are your guys' favorite songs on this? I, I love Desert Island Disc, which is a gorgeous acoustic song.
3: I mean, I mean Burn the Witch is, is is great. By the way, that's another song that was around since uh, I think. You know, since the early two thousands, there were there were lyrics on it. At least uh, the title and lyrics, right? Yeah, I well, heard whenever ever. they they pull the thing where they put the the right. title and lyrics in the album art, that means it's like a song they tried to record right. and didn't succeed, and then they're making themselves seem all mysterious by popping it in yeah. there. So, so they've been working. It's another song they've been beating themselves to death to try to capture. And I, I, it's funny when they that was the first single when I first heard it, and I just I I was like, ah, oh, it's kind of dull. Was my first reaction, but that's because basically. You were not trained in the current media environment to uh, take in a Radiohead song like while we're working or whatever. It's really like it's not going to be like uh, you know. It it actually does require you got to put on your good headphones and kind of zone into it and really and which is one of the things I think a lot of people think they were trying to send a message by the way that this album requires a new level of attention by deleting all their their Twitter presence and deleting their Facebook and deleting their website like saying like go offline go and like, yeah, you know, and, lie in a field and right. uh, listen
2: to this, this album. And the "Burn the Witch thing was sent out as just a flyer in the mail to people, a printout of just said "Burn the Witch. Right, I didn't get one. Did you get I one? Didn't get one either. Uh, I saw uh, a picture uh, of it on the internet. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure mailed to who, but the point is that <laughs> they went as old school as they could. They erased all of their stuff online. And there was just a physical printout. It's sort of really, like
3: that joke about Marilyn Manson going door-to-door shocking people. Right, right. You know, they're, they're not only going, going
0: back to their 90s songs, they're going back to 90s. Publicity techniques from
3: yeah, yeah. like 1890s. Wait, I think, that, I think that's Tommy York at the doors. Right. Oh my a fly, gosh, what the are the, the chances? Wow. <laughs> and Hello.
2: this tour is sort of interesting. That last time around, they did like ten months straight playing arenas. They seem really burned out. Here, they're playing a few festivals. They're playing the Garden. They're playing LA, and that's it. How, at least for now. Are they going to do a
3: big show with like an orchestra and a choir and stuff? Nobody
2: knows anything. Because I mean that that does, it does
3: raise the question again. Yeah. They're always making these albums well, and King of Limbs was impossible to play until they got an additional
2: right. percussionist and, and that same guy Clive, he just tweeted that he will be on the tour, so they will have yes. they they have two drummers once again.
0: A lot of people were mezza meta about their last record, The King of Limbs. Were you guys how would you guys think of it?
2: It was maybe my least favorite of the post Pablo Honey era even. It just never quite clicked for me like the previous ones
3: half a great record half a mm-hmm. great record <laughs> that's, that's a nice hit, yeah, I mean I, I felt there was a weird drop off in like a like half of it I really liked half of it I, you know they I think they they really thought they were trying they really were going for something if you read again Frick's interview or his cover story I mean they, they really felt that like I think for them they felt like it was as much a reinvention as, as kid a which I have Little trouble hearing, I guess. But I think I think for me, it's one of those rhythmically, things, I mean, with the yeah, two drummers, that, true, for sure, true. Uh-huh. That is true, and and, and it, it facilitates. They had two Tom's, ball drummers, yeah. not that's, one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it facilitates Tom's dancing. I guess that's the uh-huh. you know uh-huh. then, right. I, I think part of it is, is also is for them was th- sometimes for radio it feels like the method is as much the point as the end result, and I think their method was radically changed from what it, right. from what they, they, I I don't even from from the descriptions I've read. I don't even quite get what they were doing, but apparently everything was extremely cut up. It was never, you know, which isn't that different then again than other stuff they've done, but it must have been even more extreme.
0: Right, but for sure, like beginning when Tom York discovered, like laptop music, that was a huge thing for him and they would chop stuff up. Yes, uh, yeah, I'm right, almost so thinking I, like Dylan talking about his mathematics.
3: Yeah, <laughs> right, right. right. Yeah. It's, it's. I'd need to ask them more directly and, and understand what the difference was. But, but this right. is, this is not chopped up. But listen, there's electronic stuff all over this new record. Sure. All over this new record. It's just not the dominant. Aspect, right. you know, there's beats everywhere. There's you know, there's synths, There's all sorts right. of things, you know. And, and it's, it's
0: definitely yeah, it's not their unplugged record, but it's certainly there. There are songs that you can imagine being just them and a guitar. Yeah, yeah there right. were even
3: moments, honestly, uh, when I was like, gee, you know, I might prefer this song, you know. Just an acoustic guitar in Tom's voice. There were a couple songs where it's like it's like I don't know maybe Nigel like cool it for a minute like I don't know, but but right. then and then you I go back and forth you know and I, I'm sure even they you know that's a method they've occasionally uh, resorted to and I, I wondered whether there were times when they, they they definitely went for the big orchestral thing over and over again on this record and, right. and it did there were times when it reminded me of people have compared it to the two Nigel Godrich. Beck acoustic records you know and there there is something to that yeah, she, but that's I, funny you, that you I really don't hear yeah, yeah I mean yeah. like
0: you know Sea Change is such an acoustic record yeah. you know it's, right. it's like that is just like you know Beck living in like the mid 70s you know <laughs> right right uh, I, uh, yeah.
3: I, 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 yeah I agree I think it's a kind of a superficial I think I think there's moments when the mood for a moment seems to kind of Stay in that zone, and that's when it feels most Becky Beckian. But thankfully, it always breaks out of it. Right. I think. I think that that's the deeper you listen, the less it sounds like that stuff. And I also think, frankly, that the John Greenwood is a much more interesting orchestrator than Beck's dad. No. <laughs> so, so, oh, throw up yeah. shit at Beck's <laughs> dad. Yeah,
0: <that's> true. <laughs> Take that, Beck's dad. Yeah. Um,
3: but um.
0: <laughs> um, I love the uh, numbers. I think the number is one of my favorite that's a cool songs. Song. Yeah. yeah. We could keep going, but I think we might wrap it up uh, here. You know, with any Radiohead record, you know, I, I think they they usually take a couple months to fully sink in. So maybe we'll come back later in the year, maybe for our Records of the Year uh, episode in December.
2: Sure.
0: Um, but uh, Andy Green, Brian Hyatt, thanks Thank for you. coming on. Of course. Don't Sometimes it feels like there aren't enough hours in the day. So if you're still making trips to the post office, you need a better way. Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official United States postage for any letter or package right from your computer and printer. We have a special offer where you can sign up for Stamps.com using the promo code MUSIC. You get a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus, which includes postage and a digital scale. So go to Stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in music. That's stamps.com and enter music. I put
3: a spell on you. Because of mine.
0: And that was, of course, I put a spell on you by Screaming Jay Hawkins. Uh, one of his greatest hits and uh, maybe his greatest hit. and we have, Maybe his only hit. Maybe his only <laughs> hit. And we're going to talk about that because we have the author of the new novel, uh, Screamin' Jay Hawkins, all-time greatest hits, Mark Benelli, Rolling Stone contributing editor. Thanks for coming in, Mark. Oh, thanks for having me, Nathan. Mark, you've been a contributing editor at Rolling Stone for around 15 years now? Like yeah, that. I started around 2000. And yeah. you've had a couple lives. I mean, you profiled everybody from Radiohead to uh, you wrote a brilliant profile of George Clinton, which was, that uh, was really
4: fun. one of my yeah.
0: favorite uh, stories from the last couple of years. And also politics and culture the Pope. You, you, true. Uh, you wrote about Pope Francis uh, for our cover story uh, last year or two years it was ago. Two,
4: yeah, two years ago, I believe.
0: Yeah, and, and you also have another life as a novelist. You wrote Sacco and Vanzetti Must Die, which is a book I encourage anyone to check out where you play with kind of formal devices and, you know, you have a is it fair? That you have a bit of a rep as a you know you're you're a writer who's willing like to push the form.
4: Yeah, I think so. And I think yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And with both books, I think I took I, I must like the idea of taking history or real facts and kind of messing with them in some way. And I think maybe that comes out of my journalistic background.
0: Yeah. And that that leads to your new book, which kind of blends the two sides of your your life even more. In the, in the sense that on one hand, it mixes straight up music journalism about the life of Screaming Jay Hawkins. And also kind of the myth and fiction. First of all, why don't you just tell me how you got the idea to write about Freeman Jay J. Hawkins? Like, how did this come together?
4: I think, you know, the main appeal for me was just the perversity of the choice. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you sort of made a mental list of, of musicians who would be worthy of a novel or a biography or a film biopic... I think Scream J. Hawkins would be way, way, way towards the bottom of most people's list. And so so for me, somebody... You're saying there
0: isn't currently a bidding war for options over Scream J. Hawkins' life right now. Well, it's, now. it's funny yeah. you say that.
4: A couple of years ago, I was maybe halfway into the book. Uh, Jason Fine, our colleague and my longtime editor, uh, I was ta- talking to him on the phone and sort of complaining about how I didn't have enough time. You know, it was taking me a really long time to finish the book. And, and I was saying, I'm really worried, you know, because this is just a story that's out there and somebody else might just take this. And there was a long pause and then Jason said, I don't think you need to worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> and was he proven? Right? He was he was right. But um I guess at a certain point I must have been reading the liner notes to, to one of his compilations and, and you know, I came to Jay through through I put a spell on you, which is the song we just heard, which is really his one hit and it's such a great song. And it's I mean, just
0: like one of like the most awesomely weird novelty rock songs out that came out of the the fifties. It's like one of the craziest early like rock and R&B songs out there. It just yeah. exists in this world of its own. It's been used by like Jim Jarmusch. Uh, That's how
4: I first heard it. It was right. used a lot in um, an early Jarmusch film, Stranger, Stranger Than Paradise, which I saw years after it came out in college. And there's a character in the film who, who plays the song over and over. And it's just so, yeah, it's so haunting and weird. And it's a very funny song, but it's not, it's, it's one of those rare fun- songs that uses humor that is also manages to be kind of creepy and moving and it's... It, I feel like it's kind of a timeless song. There's, yeah. there's a waltz, it's done in kind of a waltz. You know,
0: stuff. Yeah. And, the and crazy it, time signature. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
4: And it's funny. The other day, I was in a pharmacy or somewhere, and I heard a, an old Chuck Berry tune from the same era. And it just, and it occurred to me that that, that song—it was a great song. I can't remember which. It was one of his big hits. But it felt very dated. Like it immediately made me think of like the fifties. Whereas, right. whereas I put a spell on you feels somehow right. out of time. Almost uh, like
0: this is a funny comparison, but almost in the same way that some Dylan songs feel like they exist like in their own universe. I mean, this is like. Totally. I can't think of a song that created its own universe as much as I put a spell on you.
4: Very much so. And that was I so that was the gateway for me I guess to just be sort of peripherally interested in him and then yeah as I was saying at some point I guess I was flipping through the liner notes of one of his CDs and his biography or at least the biography as he told it was so bonkers and so obviously exaggerated but also I immediately recognized such a perfect story if it were true. You know, Well, he, yeah,
0: let's talk about some of like these crazy. I mean actually another Dylan thing. I mean like screaming Jay Hawkins like Dylan made up a lot of crazy stories about his life. So yes. and that so do you want to tell us about some of the things that he
4: yeah. Well, he claimed that he was adopted and raised by an entire tribe of Indians in Cleveland. This would have been he was born in 1929. He claimed that he lied about his age when he was 14 in order to enlist in World War II and that he saw combat in the Pacific. Uh, he claimed that he was a like a middleweight boxing champion in Alaska. Uh, I mean, it goes on and on. And then, you know, when he died in 2000, stories came out that he had claimed that he had a upwards of 75
0: illegitimate children. So And, and there, a lot of these stories were accepted. Like you can look go to his Wikipedia page and actually I think it still says that he actually was a boxing champion in Alaska. So you yeah. actually had to do some you did some digging here. Yeah.
4: Well, it's funny. I actually I don't know what what how, how much of the stuff is true or not. Right. My my sort of working Thesis for the book was like, let's just take him at his word for it, right. and that was the fu- for me as a novelist. That was that was why he was such a fun uh, subject and to play around with. Like, just basically, it gave me so much leeway to dip into these crazy worlds. And I kind of, I kind of didn't want to know how much of this stuff was true. I suspect the seeing combat in world war ii was not true i suspect <laughs> the indian tribe probably not true um but he may have he, been a boxer you know right um but yeah you're right and, i mean and and a lot of a lot ahead. of these a lot of these profile you know the few profiles there are of him and and you know liner notes and places like wikipedia they just accept a lot of this stuff at face value which is pretty interesting
0: including that like there's the story about how he recorded i put a spell on you
4: Right, and he often told this story in interviews that he'd originally written the song as a kind of straight ballad, more in the style of that tune, Pledging Your Love, which is um, played in a lot of, like, Scorsese movies. It's a very kind of croony, falsetto. Croony, almost
0: like Charles Brown or yeah. something. like yeah. that yeah. era.
4: And the way he told the story was that he went into the studio and the producer wasn't liking the way things were going, so he brought in a big case of wine and they all got really drunk and then he blacked out. <laughs> Ten days later, they handed him <laughs> this single, and he listened to it, and he didn't even recognize it. And there were all these crazy like grunts and howls, and that's how he became Screaming Jay Hawkins. And it's almost like a Marvel Comics origin right. story. You right. know? I mean, right. and, and if you really, I, I don't know if that was true or not. I suspect it's not true, because he was doing songs kind of like that, sort of blue shouter type songs, you know, years before. So he was, he was playing around with that sort of singing style for a while. Right. So probably it just naturally evolved, but his story, his versions are always better than (laughs) than whatever the truth might've been.
0: So you wrote, I I mean, this book, which I'm really enjoying is, is like, it's, it's this like kind of novelistic approach that takes him at face value and goes into each one of his major myths. Right. Was that, so many
4: musicians, so so many of the more iconic musicians have gotten this sort of film biopic treatment in recent years. I I feel like there's something somewhat cinematic about the fragmented approach I did. Like, you just kind of dip in and out of scenes in his life. So, yeah, we see him in World War II, we see him touring with Fats Domino, which that is true. He did do that. And
0: that's a wonderful section. I love your depiction of Fats Domino as you know the guy and a lot of it's based on you know true stuff about like how Fats would cook for himself and his band because of Jim Crow. Yeah. Was that was that actually true that he didn't want to like have to um, you know get some uh, a cook to sneak him food from the back of a restaurant, and that's why he cooked.
4: Yeah, and like I kind of researched around Jay's stories. That right. was my sort of M.O., basically. Like, I didn't, I like I said, I didn't really want to know if he saw combat in World War II or not, but I did research, like, it, it turns out, in fact, that people did lie about their age to fight in World War II, right. people as young as 14, because there was this patriotic fervor at the time. So that could have happened. You know, and then I researched, like, he, he claimed that he saw combat in the Pacific, so it was like, okay, where might he have been? What you know, how segregated was the Army at that time? What sorts of jobs would a black soldier at that time have gotten? And so I sort of circled his stories and tried to get the sort of surrounding details somewhat accurate. But, I also, you know, I also felt like I had a lot of freedom to, to just make stuff up.
0: You said you kind of didn't want to know, like, how far did you go to actually check his name and, like, soldier roles or, like...
4: I didn't check that
0: at all. I mean, there's really,
4: there's not that much. Well, it's funny. At one point, very early on, I thought, you know, speaking about like the perversity of the choice of him as subject matter, I thought maybe I should write like a straight up biography, like a well-researched rock bio of this guy who had one hit and is such an unlikely choice. And and there are chapters that feel
0: very straight up, like, all right, this just reads like totally solid music journalism, and then yeah. you go into, like, a more, you know, novel, a very personal passage that's like, follows his life as a child.
4: Yeah, and I yeah. intentionally wanted to blend all of that together. Um, and, and ultimately, that's why I didn't go the biography route, because I just loved the freedom that fiction afforded me. And I felt like like his, his penchant for myth-making really gave me license, gave me the liberty to kind of Make stuff up as well, and kind of, kind of go crazy with that stuff.
0: And the fact that there really aren't any great like profiles or books written about him, right? I mean, it's kind yeah, of yeah. There were
4: two. There are two good ones, but they're you know they're relatively short. Nick Tosh's, right. um, The great, the, Tosh, right. the great you know music writer. He wrote, I think, two of the great music books. Dino about Dean Martin, and, right. and uh, Hellfire is one of my favorites about Jerry Lee Lewis. And he profiled Hawkins in Cream in the early seventies, and then Jerry Hershey. In her book *Nowhere to Run*, which is a bunch of profiles of r and soul artists, um, she's a great profile of Jay. Um, it's a funny story. He was opening for the Stones in the right. late '70s at the Garden. Apparently, uh, James Brown was supposed to open. I can't—I mean, I can't remember what happened. He got sick, or he just couldn't do it. And so. Bizarrely, they chose Jay as his his replacement. And Hershey describes this very funny scene of, like, these these Stones fans just watching Jay Hawkins come out on stage and being very perplexed. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But that was kind of it. And then he did, like, I looked at some later interviews, but...
0: um, he died in two thousand.
4: He died in yeah. two thousand. Just before he died, he was he was working on a documentary with this Greek filmmaker, and it's not the greatest doc, but that was nice to look at, just to see
0: him kind of late in life, and, right. and you know what he was, where he was at, you know, at that point. Right. For me, it was kind of a window into a time when we just had so much less information about musicians and just celebrities in general, but especially early rock musicians who you know weren't incredibly famous and kind of just had the, that liberty to create their own myths. I mean, you also get into some of the racial issues of that time. I mean, like, as you talk about in the book, uh, you know, Alan Freed, the famous Cleveland DJ, basically kind of helped created Screamin' Jay's like persona to a certain degree, which is like this crazy kind of, you know, racial stereotype.
4: Yeah, well, Freed, apparently, it was his idea to have Jay jump out of a coffin on stage. He was carried on stage, um, at least in you know his early days, after I put a spell on you, um, in a coffin, and he would he would jump out of it. And then, yeah, his costume, I think that was more Jay's idea, okay. but he would dress, yeah, he put a like, fake bone through his nose, and he carried the staff with a skull on it and wore these kind of crazy robes, and it was very much like... Like a witch doctor from a really racist '40s Looney Tunes cartoon or something, you know. Right. So it's it's kind you know it's problematic. The NAACP denounced him, I think, at the time. But I found it very interesting thinking about his own relation to his audience and like what he might have been intending. I mean, years later, he he had a record called. Black music for white people, which is such a great title, <laughs> and I just made me think about you know what he was playing around with and what how he might have been mocking the expectations of white audiences by coming up with this shtick and this persona and saying you know do you think you want some sort of authenticity from me? Well, I'll give you this, right? Um, and so that that was very appealing to me, uh, and I think also ha- having a character like Jay. A character is kind of outwardly cartoonish as Jay, where you don't really expect anything deep or, or heavy coming from him. Being able to explore some of these issues through a character like him, I like the unexpectedness of that quite a bit. Nina Simone very famously covered, I Put a Spell on You. If you were writing a novel about Nina Simone, you would, you would certainly get into lots of really serious issues and, and political stuff, and which she, which she talked about very openly and sang about very openly. With Jay, you don't necessarily expect that when you you just sort of look at him or think about him. And and so, for me, that was another big appeal.
0: Well, he had this, like, incredible... Knowing sense of humor too. I mean, he was like this cartoon figure, right? But he also wrote that, that song, "What Constipation Blues," that you yes. talk about, because because there had never been a song he said about real pain. Yeah.
4: yeah, there's a great clip on YouTube of him performing that with Serge Gainsborg actually, oh which is God. like I highly recommend. But yeah, he was really funny and really sharp, and he, you know, a lot of what he was doing was very intentional. And like you said, this, this is you know the '50s. There wasn't the same kind of music journalism happening and like he, a lot of the stuff was happening under the surface or it wasn't it wasn't talked about as much. I mean you mentioned George Clinton earlier and he's he's another, I think, great character who uses humor really
0: you in, know, in really way, effectively. He was almost like an inheritor in a way, right, to Scream and Jay in the sense that he like you know, had the same outrageous costumes and persona, but was able to take it into this incredible place. He had he was in the 70s and was able to do something else with it.
4: Well, yeah, I have a great story about that. Last, you know, I did I did the profile of him about a year ago, which was was really a treat. You know, I hung out with him in Tallahassee, where he lives now, and we we took a road trip. Uh, it's to it's on
0: RollingStone.com. I encourage anyone to check it out right now. <laughs>
4: uh, thank you. And yeah, no, it was really just super fun. And I'm from Detroit, so we we kind of geeked out about you know his time back there, but. About a year later, just just a month or so ago, I I was invited to go to a literary festival in Tallahassee to read from my book. And I ended up doing an event with George. And after, I mean, a couple of funny things happened. I was reading from the book, and I think I was going on a little long. And he just suddenly started singing, I put a spell on you. (laughs) (laughs) And so the whole audience started laughing. uh, So that was a great way to kind of get heckled. Um, I think at No future, better way. No, right? no, yeah. yeah. I think in future readings I'm going to tell that story and, and instruct the audience that if they get bored to just start singing, <laughs> I'll put a spell on you. But much more interestingly to me, after I finished, we, we went into a Q and a and I didn't really know if, if George had known Hawkins. We hadn't talked about it before, but it turned out he'd seen him a bunch of times at the Apollo, which is um, something I write about in the book, um, Jace shows at the Apollo. And even weirder, uh, during the Maggot Brain Tour, apparently George – jumped out of a coffin himself and he said he was directly oh. inspired by Jay. Wow! And he said he put his own kind of psychedelic sort of acid-inspired twist on it. He had these chicken legs, <laughs> chicken's feet, hanging out of the bottom of the coffin to, like, really freak out the crowd. <laughs> but, yeah, so that was really fascinating for me to sort of see that through line, which I didn't know about. But but it, as you said, it totally makes sense. with Absolutely. The theatricality of, of both of their acts.
0: It's like, well, like, and J was only able to be outrageous in the ways that were permitted... In the 50s and 60s, yeah. and, and, you know, hope, hopefully those, those, that world expanded. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. While you researched this book, was there anything that you came away with about Screaming Jay that was like, I can't believe this is not out there in your research? Or, or did you? Well, you know, one of the funnier things,
4: you know, he got his start with a guy named Tiny Grimes. And this is an example of something that seems totally made up, but it's actually true. Tiny Grimes was a jazz guitarist of you know, some renown. He was more of a sideman, but he played with Art Tatum and Billie Holiday. And he actually, Charlie Parker, um, some of his first recorded sessions were with as a sideman to Tiny Grimes. By the time Jay hooked up with him, this was before Jay had done I Put a Spell on You or, and just and sort of created his his own persona. He was just working for him, actually, as kind of a chauffeur. But by the time Jay hooked up with Tiny, Tiny had created a, a kind of jive swing group, um, all black, but they dressed like Scotsmen. They wore kilts and, like, tams and, like, the long socks. And it was the group was called Tiny Grimes and His Rocking Highlanders. And, <laughs> and so... There were, there were moments like that where, you know, that was all real, you know. And so I, I loved how just bizarre some of the details of the time were.
0: Like literally, like, I just, you can't make this stuff up. Exactly. moments. Yeah. It's really wide yeah. open territory. Totally. Yeah. Well, I encourage anyone uh, to check this out. The name of the book is Screamin' Jay Hawkins' All-Time Greatest Hits by Mark Benelli Rolling Stone Contributing Editor and author of Detroit City is the Place to Be and Sacco and Benzetti Must Die. Mark, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks so much for having me. This is great. All right. And that was Bored to Death, the new single from the new Blink-182. We're back for our Reader Mail segment with Associate Editor Patrick Doyle. Patrick, hey. what's up?
1: Not too much. Thanks Thanks for for coming
0: on. Thank you. (laughs) All right. So Blink-182 are
1: back with a new lead singer. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about this? Well, the classic lineup of Blink is Travis Barker, Mark Hoppus, Tom DeLonge. And Mark and Tom have had a chemistry for years, going back to like 1993, um, that Kind of the fans that you associate. By
0: chemistry, you mean they've had issues <laughs> with each other <laughs> or a la- lack of chemistry? Or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. They,
1: that too. But, you know, the, their classic songs, a lot of them are the two of them singing. Mark will sing the chorus, Tom, the verse. They they have a dynamic. Well oh, I see what
0: you mean. Like, yeah, musical chemistry. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: But they've also not gotten along. There's a, There's been right. problems behind the curtain that people didn't really know about, I guess, until Blink broke up the first time around 2004. And then, I mean, Tom DeLonge has
0: basically been kind of going his own way, right, with his group yeah. Angels and Airwaves. You just recently profiled him yeah. uh, in the issue and, and the features on RollingStone.com. It kind of gives a nice window into Tom DeLonge's eccentricities, <laughs> which include you could you could tell say better than I can: uh, like.
1: conspiracy theories, uh, government officials, uh, secret meetings. Uh, he's he's obsessed with UFOs, so he has taken it upon himself to let the public know that. As the Blink-182 song goes, Aliens Exist. <laughs> um, and, and he also, he wanted to pull the band in another direction for their
0: last album, Neighborhoods, which yeah. a, a lot of people had problems with. It kind of yeah. took them in a different direction. Yeah,
1: Travis said that, the drummer said that, that he was trying to make them sound like uh, Coldplay meets U2, like this right. big, grand sound that... Blink did not do, uh, right. you know, with uh, Take Off Your Pants and Jacket or, uh, right. you know, uh, Enema of the State, you know. Right. They are known as much more fun and, you know, just uh, punk, right. uh, punk pop, you know. So basically,
0: Tom DeLonge is not in the group for now. He hasn't officially left. And, and they are going on tour and they have a new album with a new lead singer, Matt Skiba, mm-hmm. who was in... Alkaline a, Trio. Alkaline Trio, yeah. very a well-known emo punk-pop group. Yeah, you know, yeah. we pretty high-profile.
1: Tell us about how people are reacting
0: or, or what do you think of the new single um, and, and it, how's it going to work out?
1: I, it, I'm a little curious how it's going to work out because the band, uh, there's, you know, in the interviews, they're saying this is sort of back to what we do best and you know the, the chorus of this song is about being 17 or not being 17 it's moving past it being 17 but they're right. they're sort of still living in high school right. and they're 40 year old men you know it's uh, right.
0: It's a tough I mean that, that is a tough position I mean you know you see this with groups whose most successful most important songs are about teen life you know yeah. they can it can kind of feel like they're frozen in amber every Blink
1: song is a lot of it is about high school right. and same when I think of the Strokes there. you know th- those guys get older that's another band that sort of had trouble moving past being young and you know right. partying in the early 20s and that stuff and that just at some point you don't relate to, to those songs anymore right it helps to write songs like Willie Nelson if you want to be playing them until 80 you
0: know it's a little harder to be playing like songs that are you know more directed at 17 year olds Yeah. but let's actually you know let's find out what our readers are thinking of the new of the new Blink 182 we'll read some reader mail comments Mm -hmm. first one's from Andrew Almond the new Blink single is super bland and cookie cutter folks may write off Tom for
1: being eccentric but at least he's trying to do innovative and eclectic stuff Mm -hmm. I I agree with that and just to go back to what we were talking about with the the dynamic between Mark and Tom, the, it just worked so well. And this new version of Blink, uh, I can't tell the difference basically between Mark and Matt Skiba when they sing a lot of the time. My my a friend who's a fan also was. I was texting with him, and he said that he without me even saying that. He said, you know, there's two marks. Like they 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 don't. They, you can't really they don't have that chemistry where you know you can you know immediately when Tom starts singing who he is you know
0: yeah I think I like it a little better than you I think it's, yeah. I, I think it's a you know it's pretty catchy I think it's a really solid like kind of radio friendly like pop punk yeah. you know song but uh, I hear you all right this next letter is from a reader named Chevy Heston I'm not into the UFO stuff. That is a reference to Tom DeLonge's interests and was never really that much of a Blink fan. But I admire Tom for being a real artist and wanting to grow and try new things with his sound and his art and not trying to be some 40-year-old artist rehashing the punk pop songs of his youth. There are a ton of bands out there recycling the old stuff in a desperate attempt to reclaim their fame and make a quick buck. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we've addressed some of this stuff already. I mean, it, it's true. On one hand, Blink are in the position of like, all right, we want to give our fans what they want. They're still a big arena band. Yeah, they're, they they can sell out sheds and arenas and and go on major tours. Yeah, but doing that means that they're they're playing songs that that were originally for high schoolers that yeah. they wrote when they were twenty.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, and um, you know, I was shocked that they are right out of the gate playing big, these big amphitheaters. I thought it was going to be a smaller thing, you know, because Mark and Travis had a band called Plus 44, and this is really no different than than their side project. It's interesting because it's going to be a test of
0: kind of how much power the name has versus the actual lineup. This is something we talked about. Like, you know, when Roger Waters left Pink Floyd, he tried touring and he realized his profile just wasn't as big. Just the power of the name meant a lot. And David Gilmour went without him and toured as Pink Floyd with the other members and and was able to sell out stadiums and and arenas. So we'll see if that's true with Blink, too. It's
1: it's funny that, um, you know, how quickly the band has sort of disowned tom and like you know they were doing an interview with us uh in la and mark was saying you know with the previous incarnation of Blink he was sort of just like just you know talking about the last 20 years as if it were just a, a flash in the pan you right
0: know? and meanwhile there are signs that like tom's been messing with them too he really he put out a press release or went on social media saying like i'm gonna be getting back with the band yeah. on next album on their next album. or the day that their tickets went on sale the new blinks tickets went yeah, on sale basically the day yeah he said i'll be getting back with them kind of which You could see that As him trying to undermine the band Yeah Right He's saying like Wait this is not the real blink I'm gonna be back Yeah uh, Whether he intends to or not Yeah Okay this is from A reader named Anonymous Peace was done months ago Allegedly to be released Early April rs clearly pushed it to the week of blink's release for their benefit they got us <laughs> <laughs> is, this, is, is this the case patrick <laughs> we did have that meeting and right. <laughs> right. The, the illuminati <laughs> have been uh, planning on holding our blink 182 story
1: i've seen this uh a couple play like in the comments board or or somewhere else too i don't Some know where conspiracy
0: this is. minded tom delong fans. yeah
1: i'm curious where this is coming from
0: interesting Interesting. All right. Well, can you say definitively that this was not the case? Correct. It was not the case. Okay. This is from a reader named F-E-D-E-O-1-8. He's too ambitious for Blink-182. He's talking about Tom DeLonge. I can see why his bandmates got fed up with him. Whatever makes him happy, you can't tie him down. Yeah. All right. No, you can't. (laughs) Uh, Okay. And the last one is from someone named Benice Alway. UFOs are no joke. Most people are just unaware of all the documented cases and government officials who have come out to speak about them. Five presidents, 10 astronauts, et cetera. (laughs) I mean, the only thing I'll say to this is that UFOs technically mean unidentified flying objects. Yeah. So in that sense, there's certainly no joke. Right. Because there are lots of things that are unidentified flying objects.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, I want to believe that UFOs in the sense of craft from other planets you know that we've seen them, but I think if we had seen them that they would it would be a much bigger deal that it wouldn't be something that is only that YouTube people know about or something because there's these these uh, these videos that are always very grainy, you know, right, right. Well, I guess I think we are maybe seeing from these comments that there is a
0: constituency for the Tom DeLonge strain of the original Blink members. And maybe, you know, it's not a bad move for him to, you know, pursue this for now.
1: Yeah, I hope he comes back, though.
0: Well, we'll see how this pans out over the next year. We'll see how the Blink tour does and how uh, Tom DeLonge does with his various projects. Yeah. And uh, thanks for coming on, Patrick. Thanks, Nathan. All right. And that's it for Rolling Stone Music Now. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review at the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts.